I'm Kevin Barrett, and you're listening to Truth Jihad Radio. No commercials, no foundation sponsors, 100% crowdfunded since 2010. If you want to support this kind of radio and get early access to the shows, please go to kevinbarrett.substack.com. Don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome, this is the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from Sadia, Morocco, where False Flag Weekly News co-host Kat McGuire visited us this week. We'll talk a little bit that, about that on False Flag Weekly News tomorrow. E. Mike's, not E. Mike, E. Michael Jones, no, it's, it's actually J. Michael uh, Springman, who's going to be on uh, all kinds of huge stories, including possible World War III coming up. We've got uh, all kinds of... Craziness going off over in the Red Sea to distract us from the genocide prosecutions in The Hague and all of that and more will be discussed on False Flag Weekly News tomorrow. You can find that by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the False Flag Weekly News link. All right, tonight I have two amazing guests, both trained as physicists and both have branched off into all kinds of fascinating and ultra-controversial topics. In the second hour, Ron Unz of the UnsReviewUNC.com will discuss his new article, American Pravda, Israel and the Holocaust Hoax. Whoa, that's a kind of strong language from Ron. You'll understand uh, why he's using it if you listen and, of course, read his article. And uh, Ron Unz has, of course, taken up a whole bunch of red pill topics and become one of the uh, most controversial and certainly accomplished uh, people in the alternative media community. In the first hour, another rogue physicist, Josh Middeldorf, is with us. He's been publishing great stuff for forever. He's my favorite science writer. I think he may be the, the best science writer working in English. If there are better ones, I just haven't run into them. Uh, or I haven't subscribed to their substacks, I guess. Anyway, Josh has published a bunch of interesting stuff recently about breakaway civilizations based on Joseph Farrell's book. And he has an article from a week or two ago on anomalies, mysteries, and conspiracies. Maybe they're all related. That gives us a one-paragraph uh, what should we call it? A grand unified conspiracy theory of everything that I think is one of the best that's ever been presented. So let's get into it. Uh, welcome, Josh. How are you? Hi, Kevin. Thanks for those flattering introductions. I'll try to live up. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been, it's true. Ever since Dorian Sagan, uh, who is another of my favorite science writers, introduced you to me, uh, I've been just a totally a huge fan. Uh, you know, Dorian, he hasn't gone in, to, you know, he hasn't followed these red pill rabbit holes that you have. He doesn't even seem to believe in Psy last I talked to him. 
So, uh, so kind of he passed you off to me and I've been a huge fan ever since. So shout out to you know, Dorian. I, I didn't realize that Dorian had been our introduction. So to, for your listeners, Dorian was my co-author on my only popular book called Cracking the Aging Code. I'd been looking to get that book published for ages and then connected with Dorian. He liked the idea. He had a publisher and everything went smoothly after that until his mother died and <laughs> interrupted the whole project. But, uh, you know, Dorian is a writer and not a scientist. So I think I um, dare to go places where Dorian doesn't because um, he, he knows that he's too easily criticized uh, because he doesn't have the science background. Interesting. Yeah. I, guess I, I wondered why he seemed a little timid on the kinds of uh, controversial topics that you were the exact opposite of timid in your coverage of them. Uh, but he's, he's certainly a, a wonderful science writer. And, and you are too, but you're not just a science writer. You're also a scientist with, uh, you know, accomplishments in a number of fields. So I guess you're allowed to go and talk about UFOs and ESP and free energy and weaponized weather and hidden history and, and come on my show and, and, uh, be one of the more, um, uh, wide ranging guests I've ever had. So anyway. Uh, I, I'm allowed to talk about those things as long as I don't apply for a job in academia or look for a USF grant or anything like that, NSF grant, anything like that. Yeah, I, I understand. I'm, that's that's I'm the big unfundable. Problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've talked to a number of people in universities, including my own dear brother, who have said, you know, and I've, I've suggested, oh, you should think about researching this or that area. It looks really interesting. Nobody's done stuff that could maybe give you, you know, there could be breakthroughs. In, and they always say, uh, yeah, right. You're trying to kill my career. Yeah. So uh, remember who what Dorian's dad was. He was the foremost debunker of, quote, fringe science of the 20th century. That's so ironic. Dorian has come a long way. Since Carl. Yeah, and, and maybe uh, his uh, uh, late uh, lamented mother, Lynn Margulis, a lawyer, uh, deserves some of that credit. She was certainly uh, a very uh, open-minded, uh, wide-ranging thinker. And, and she was uh, – originally, that's how I met Dorian, actually, was I got to know Lynn. And she came on my show a number of times and said some incendiary things about 9-11. And then, uh, then I got to know Dorian as well. Um, I think Lynn Margulis was maybe the, the most prestigious scientist ever to um, question 9-11, at least at the, you know, to the degree of intensity that she did. And a lot of other uh, science dogmas as well. Yeah, Lynn is a hero of mine and certainly just much more broad minded than her early first husband. Yeah, yeah. And she kind of revolutionized uh, evolutionary thought. That's one reason, actually, that your Aging Code book uh, with Dorian uh, really clicked with me because I had you know, gotten to know Lynn. So then I read some of her stuff and got interested in that debate about evolutionary biology that she was involved in. And so your book on aging that posits that aging is hardwired into organisms that age uh, for reasons that we can partly understand through evolutionary biology, but partly almost requires something beyond, you know, the Darwinian mechanism. You know, that was that's fascinating stuff. I'm glad that book has sold well. Well, for me, that was really a, a turning point in my career. I trained as a scientist at Harvard and looking up to all these brilliant, brilliant people. I, my thought for years and years was, how could I possibly live up to their legacy? How can I contribute? 
to the scientific uh, community, which just has so many things right. And then I discovered they had it wrong about what aging was. And I just threw myself into that hole. Here's my opportunity. And uh, that was just the first peek into uh, <laughs> many, many open doors since then. There are a lot of things that science gets wrong. And that's what I'm trying to build my career on now is um, separating the wheat from the chaff. There are certainly lots of things that many, many things that science gets right. I, I'm a scientist. I believe in the scientific community. I believe in the scientific method. Uh, and much of the criticism of science is uh, unfounded. But you find these gems where science has, the scientific community for one reason or another has neglected a whole area that just doesn't fit in with their dogmas. And that's where I live. That's the most interesting thing to me. I agree completely. And some of those dogmas may just be sort of, you know, natural reactions to people buying into the particular way of seeing things that you know, their, their era has uh, sort of uh, accepted as the way things are. And then they have to die off for the next generation to get beyond that as Kuhn wrote in the structure of scientific revolutions. But some of these areas where science seems to have erected uh, rather irrational dogmas that often conflict with all kinds of known evidence. Uh, and these are, you know, as you say, that's where you live. ESP being one of the most obvious ones where there's been all kinds of scientific work proving the existence of ESP. And for many decades now, they haven't even had to do that anymore because they've proven it seven ways from Sunday. And yet the scientific community still hasn't really accepted that. There are all kinds of other ones as well. And in many of them, we might posit some reason sort of beyond just, you know, stupidity and conservatism. That is, somebody might be protecting something, right? Like the, with, with ESP, if somebody had weaponized ESP, then they wouldn't want any competition. So they would promote the idea that there's no such thing as ESP. They would ridicule people who want to look into it. And the same sort of thing could apply to all sorts of other areas as well. And this is leading us towards your article on anomalies, mysteries, conspiracies. Maybe they're all related. That gives us this grand <laughs> and, unified theory. And Arthur C. Clarke's novel called Childhood's End, which is exactly about uh, what, what you're saying, that the ETs come to Earth and they realize, oh, my God, they're about to figure out that thought has power of its own. And we can't let them do that. They're just too immature a species. So the ETs come to Earth for the express purpose of suppressing paranormal uh, investigations. Right. And, and as I recall, the ET species that is selected to do this, uh, it look they, they look like devils or demons. And, uh, but I think they are completely without any ESP. And so then they manage humanity for a number of generations until the ESP develops to a certain point that then humanity sort of turns into one big hive mind and flies off into other dimensions. Is, is that, that's how I remember. Bingo. That, yeah, that's it. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, that, that's a little different from what I was suggesting. You know, I, I was suggesting more that. Um, somebody, you know, when I think of like who could have weaponized ESP, well, I, I look at things like that guy, what's that guy's name? The Romanian, uh, author who was murdered in the restroom at the University of Chicago, uh, who wrote Eros and Magic in the Renaissance. 
Uh, I'll be, send me a link to that. I don't know this guy, but he's certainly uh, right in my wheelhouse. I, I better look at him. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you would find him interesting. He, he was arguing that magic is real, that um, a combination of symbolism and psi powers seems to underlie magic, that all these Renaissance magicians, uh, in fact, at, at the Renaissance, he kind of recasts as a time not so much when this, you know, these great strides in materialistic science uh, were being made by people like Francis Bacon, but rather that these great strides in psi, uh, magical science were being made and that that was, that side was more important. And I think he, he ended up getting, uh, you know, becoming controversial and possibly having uh, people in the world of magic coming after him. And then next thing you know, he's been murdered in the restroom in the University of Chicago. I'm spacing out on his name, but I'll, maybe I'll think of it later, but people could easily yeah, find it. Just Google, uh, uh, arrows and magic in the Renaissance. You know what? I'm, what I came prepared to talk about, what I'm eager to get into is this idea of a breakaway civilization, which is speculative in the extreme, but there, there are, there are reasons pointing to it from many different directions. And um, I think it's a collaborative effort, effort that we need your listeners and we need people contributing to this conversation if we're ever going to figure out what's going on. Uh, there are two two ideas. There's one, the original idea of breakaway civilization. The term was coined by Richard Dolan and it wasn't really a civilization. It was just a bunch of researchers uh, who had technologies that they weren't releasing. Uh, and it was much later on that people took that phrase more seriously. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of Jason Giorgiani, who describes, yeah, there are whole communities, square miles underground, or maybe they're under the sea, or maybe they're in Antarctica. And then the most speculative, they're on the moon or they're on Mars. They have this fabulous technology and they've built whole cities based on it. And um, I, I just want to go into what the evidence is for each of these things and different ways of interpreting that that evidence and just hope to leave your listeners with a whole lot of questions that uh, we can speculate about together. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, let's 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 try to you know, look at the best evidence and kind of the best sort of straightforward evidence for people who don't have enough time to go and, and really delve into the uh, elaborate parts of it. You know, sort of sort of the, the building seven of these topics, like the thing that you can look at and say, hmm, something funny seems to be going on here. Well, uh, from my personal knowledge, cold fusion is a suppressed technology, and I've written a lot about this. I've been to cold fusion labs. I've seen the working devices. I've seen the data from their labs. And yet it's been 20, I guess it's 25 years now, 30, 35 years. And um, it has never been developed as a commercial application why is that? Well, there are people who tell stories that every time somebody goes to commercialize it, they're murdered or they're bought out or um, they're threatened. Um, and, you know, cold fusion would be enough. It would save the planet 
we wouldn't have to burn any fossil fuels. Many of the things that we do to um, to save energy would be completely unnecessary. We wouldn't need power grids. We we wouldn't. Uh, our cars would be um, powered by a little shoebox-sized thing under the back seat, with no need for a gas tank. The cost of uh, the cost of energy would plummet way way down. Uh, this is something I I know about for sure, and and yet it's. I believe a suppressed technology, certainly an undeveloped technology. So we imagine that this breakaway civilization, there, there are people who have this technology and maybe they've been using it for, for decades. Um, so beyond that, I'd say the best evidence comes from these UFO. Quick, quick, quick question. Why, yeah, yeah, what, what are the possible go. reasons why some group with this technology would suppress it and you know, send humans on this path to burning all the fossil fuels? Um, so I'm out of the science field at that point. I'm into the political field where you know probably better than I do. What do you think are some of the plausible reasons why they would suppress well, it? Of course, it's it's wildly speculative, but like the obvious ones, I think we may have brought these up in previous interviews included, that conceivably that technology might be simple enough that the concerns about it falling into the wrong hands and people building horrific weapons in their basements might be one reason. Uh, another, That's the best reason. Yeah, yeah. I've said that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've, I've spec, I'm going to say it out loud. Um, the, the explosion in Lebanon three years ago looks very suspicious to me. I, I think that was a fusion device of some sort. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. We, we exposed that at veterans today and uh, you know, Gordon Duff, uh, who used to work with VT, he's now with the uh, the that uh, other site, the IntelDrop.com, did uh, a lot of work on that. Published all those photos that seemed to show that you know there was a, a like a neutron flash or something like that, as I recall. Gord, by the way, Gordon has has all sorts of things to say about these topics that you've brought up, uh, the breakaway civilization stuff. You know, he he. Claims he had MJ-12 type clearance, uh, witnessed a gigantic UFO after he had had a meeting on the subject at a base in England, and claims he was even offered like a, a ticket to visit a distant galaxy and turn them down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, do yes, please do connect me to this guy. Wade Frazier is the closest connection I have to this world, and he's secondary. He says he knows people who developed the technology and were suppressed, but he doesn't claim that he's seen it himself. But getting back to your question, what are the reasons that it could be suppressed? We should start with the most mundane reason, that it would put the oil companies out of business. They have trillions of dollars invested in underground oil reserves. It's what backs the United States dollar to the extent that anything is backing the dollar these days. And uh, it would disrupt the financial system of the world and certainly the put out of business the exxon mobiles of the world um so the, the most mundane reason for suppressing cold fusion would be simple greed and, and that would be one of the very worst of course uh well here, here's another one uh that this is one that i i kind of 
uh, thought of this. I didn't encounter anyone else thinking of it until I think I, I, it was a book by somebody who's opposing global warming that touched on it a bit, which is that what if the higher level civilization, be they humans or ETs or what have you, wanted humans to put uh, a lot of uh, carbon into the atmosphere because the carbon has dropped to a dangerously low level. That's why we've been in these cycles of 100,000 years of ice age and 10,000 year interglacial. We're right about at the end of the interglacial, presumably. And the carbon drops down to, I forget the exact number, something like 260 parts per million or something. Uh, and if it goes like, you know, like 10 or 15 more below that, then it could be a death spiral and we could end up with a frozen planet. So maybe some wise and benevolent ETs uh, want the Earth to be thriving with life at, at, you know, bring it back to the way it was when there was a lot higher carbon, it was a lot hotter, and there was a lot more life. And humans have been chosen to play that role. Uh, the whole climate narrative is a can of worms. Um, I've done a little bit of research and writing on it. And I think the take home message from my writing is that CO2 does not drive the uh, big fluctuations in temperature, these 100,000 year cycles. If probably more of a tail that's being wagged by the, the dog of climate change and the, and the dog is following changes in the Earth's orbit changes in the sun's luminosity and things that are not well understood. But um, the, the big graph in my article last summer on the subject shows that these 100,000 year cycles are 10 degrees centigrade, up and down and up and down. And we're already at the top of one of these 10 degree uh, cycles and presumably overdue for the next ice age and what has human uh, technology done while well, we've added uh, we've changed the carbon dioxide from 0.03 to 0.04 percent and that's added one degree celsius to what what was already a 10 degree uh, shift so uh, I, I would say that um, yeah, humans are affecting the climate, but just not that much. At this point, um, the climate is being driven by natural forces that are much larger than human. But that could be an argument that for why the wise and benevolent ETs would want humans to burn a lot more carbon. A lot keep, more carbon. Yeah, yeah, put a lot more carbon in the air. <laughs> to get us out of that 100,000 years of ice age, 10,000 years of interglacial cycle, back to where we were uh, you know, 50, 100 million years ago when the planet was teeming with life and, uh, you know, had like vastly higher uh, carbon levels in the atmosphere and uh, considerably higher temperatures. With no yeah. Ice ages. Uh, it's, a, it's another part of the climate narrative that really needs to be questioned is, is a warmer climate bad for us or really does life thrive the warmer it is to, you know, within limits, a, a few degrees warmer is probably better than a few degrees cooler. Yeah, yeah, you you would think. And that's, I think even standard science agrees that uh, plants grow more vigorously mm -hmm. with more carbon in the atmosphere and in higher temperatures. So overall, 
a plant, you know, the planet would be you know, more hospitable to life if it had higher temperatures than it has now. And certainly if it had higher temperatures than it than during these hundred thousand years of ice age. And we've been, you know, those cycles have been going on for a few million years as I understand it. But before that, before those cycles set in, when the planet started freezing and having these, you know, these chills, uh, before that it was, it was much, it was, well, it wasn't steady, but it was, it was almost, oh, you know, there were, I don't think there were ice ages. I think the ice ages have just started happening in the blink of an eye at the last few million years, right? Or maybe 10 I, I, I think it's more that we're able to document the, uh, we have these ice cores that we drill in Antarctica and in Greenland that take us back uh, a million years or so. And so we can get from the isotopic ratios and the ice cores, we can get detailed information uh, almost year by year of the uh, of information about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and about climate from that. And before that time, it's um, the information is much fuzzier. And whether there were ice ages at the time of the dinosaurs, I don't think we're capable of figuring that out. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, maybe I'm sort of imagining that the picture that these people, the scientists or the people who claim knowledge are painting is complete and accurate when, of course, it po can't possibly be. Uh, well, continue then, Josh. Tell us about some more of these areas where there's evidence for thing, you know, suppressed technology and so on. Well, uh, there's uh, the behavior on radar and by visual sightings from these military experts of UFOs. And there are a few of them that are released to the public and many, many more that are rumored or they're in websites where you can see them, where these uh, these vehicles behave in ways that our physics just can't account for. Um, they move at many thousand miles an hour and then stop on a dime. You think about when an astronaut takes off for the moon, um, he experiences seven or eight Gs, and it's really crushing, and it's it's really painful. It's, it's the most they can stand. And if you take these things seriously, the acceleration would crush anybody inside or anything inside with a thousand Gs. Um, so clearly – well, not clearly. It seems to imply that there's some kind of anti-gravity technology that's involved in any vehicle that can make these sharp turns at high speed or that start and stop quickly at high speeds. Um, it's not allowed in conventional physics, but so much the worse for conventional physics. You know, if you actually see these things doing it, Maybe it's an illusion um, in that people talk about advanced holograph techniques. That to me is, I don't, I can't imagine how to do that, to make a hologram that's visible to an entire city. Um, it's, it's harder for me to imagine than anti-gravity, but both of them are well outside of today's science. Right. And what do you think about the seeming sort of acceleration of the disclosure, the ET or UFO disclosure movement during the past few years when mainstream media is seemingly backpedaling after completely ridiculing all this stuff for decades? Now, the New York Times 
is intermittently kind of respectfully uh, covering some issues that always used to be marginalized. What has anything changed? I don't know what to make of all this. Uh, I remember December of 2017 when the article came out by Leslie Kane uh, about the Tic Tacs in 2003, you know, it was already 14 years old at that point. And uh, yeah, extraterrestrials are real, UFOs are real. And they did an article and then maybe a follow up the next day. And then they go back to business as usual as if, well, you know, we're going to still report on uh, the House Ways and Means Committee and um, what um, President Trump is having for breakfast. I guess it was Trump at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's all all very odd. Um, it's I concluded after looking into the UFO issue back twenty uh, some years ago when I was doing dissertation research, and my focus was miracle stories from Morocco. And as part of that, I studied, you know, looked at the literature on the so-called legends or you know, personal experience narratives concerning some seemingly extraordinary events that people had experienced. And the big equivalent there in many countries is UFO stories. So I looked at the UFO issue then and we quickly realized that really it has to be one of two things. Either there really are these you know, extraterrestrial and or extra dimensional or breakaway civilization craft. Uh, and the authorities are sowing all kinds of you know, blowing smoke to kind of cover it up and obscure it, confuse us. Or else, for reasons unknown, they're faking that. That is, they're inventing uh, all sorts of fake evidence for ETs and EDs and breakaway civilizations uh, for some bizarre <laughs> nefarious purpose. Like, that's, it has to be yeah, one so of those it, Exactly. But uh, what I say in this article is that either way, it points to the breakaway civilization, that uh, whether these technologies are reverse engineered from downed spacecraft or whether there are there's a whole community that's capable of doing these flights and of faking the evidence. Um, that would be even more evidence that there is a, a large community of people who uh, who have technologies that the rest of us haven't dreamed of. Well, some of it could conceivably be just storytelling, right? I mean, it, you know, that we're told that all of these people have had all of these experiences sighting things and their radar has showed them things and so on and so forth. Theoretically, a lot of that could be explained if you had some huge, heavily funded program that whose purpose was to convince ordinary people that there was some kind of ET phenomenon going on. Uh, and so basically they hired all these actors uh, that's, uh, but again, that, that's almost more, you know, that violates Occam's radius or almost more than just saying that there are ETs or EDs. Yeah, I, I agree. This is so strange that that's a possibility that we need to consider. And you look at somebody like Bob Lazar, who says he was hired to, um, to reverse engineer an anti-gravity device in 1989. Uh, you look at Ben Rich who was head of Lockheed Skunk Works and what he leaked to us about what they were working on. Um, David Grush, 
many of these people who appeared at the 2001 press conference for the disclosure project, you, you look at all of them and you maybe you're better than, than I am at, at uh, telling whether somebody is an actor making all this stuff up. Yeah, yeah. It looks to me, Josh, that, that I, I can't see it being all actors. So to me, the most likely possibility is that there is a there there, but then there also are um, disinformation efforts going on. So it, and, and that's why it's you know, so hard for us to really prove anything. Yeah, I, I have friends I respect who say this is all human technology uh, and they want us to think that there are aliens and that's going to be weaponized against us. I also um, I'm connected with a group called Humanity Rising, which is really celebrating the uh, what they say is an incipient release of information about uh, extraterrestrials and um trying to remember the guy's name. Sheehan, Daniel Sheehan, has been an intermediary between the the community of um, people who know about this and the public as, as a lawyer mm-hmm. and as a reporter. Yeah, he's yeah, been he's doing been this for decades. Show, Has he? Yeah. So he seems completely convinced that the extraterrestrials want nothing but good for humanity. And once the cat is out of the bag, it will be the dawn of a new era for humanity. Wars will cease and we'll be cooperating with with each other and uh, we'll have the extraterrestrials to guide us to a future which is not only more technologically advanced, but also more benevolent and more uh, community-minded. Yeah, and that's what Paul I, Hellier you know, thinks I wonder too, yeah. what is what does does he know something we don't know or are, is it possible that the ETs are many different races fighting over the face of the earth and some of them have very hostile intent for us yeah yeah that that that's what I would guess if assuming all that there really is some scenario like this that would be the one that would make sense uh, Paul Hellyer uh, has a more nuanced version of that kind of Pollyanna-ish view that Daniel Sheehan is associated with. He's been on the show too, by the way. He's a former Canadian defense minister. Yeah, I, I know yeah. who he is. He's, yeah. he's great. I, I didn't know that he was connected to the ET issue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He made headlines back in the early 2000s, uh, some of the most bizarre mainstream media headlines in history. Uh, things like uh, former Canadian defense minister warns Earth on brink of intergalactic war. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he and, and yeah, he says that the powers that be on Earth are in the wrong hands. That you know, Earth is is ruled by um, relative bad guys. I'm shocked. Yeah, shocked. yeah, I, yeah. That that part I can't really argue with. <laughs> but then the, that the uh, Intergalactic Federation, a lot like the one in Star Trek, um, is is actually uh, much better than that. And so when we humans demand to join that federation then we can slough off our uh, our lousy rulers and things will get much better. So that, that's his narrative. And I think Danny Sheehan's too, to a certain extent. And um, But then we also hear these things from people like Grolsch and, and, and my friend Gordon Duff, that there are some really horrific things going on too, that there are some really nasty entities out there as well. So who knows? <laughs> so back to evidence for this breakaway technology. One of my favorite things, which is seldom connected because they're two different 
communities of people talking about it is the ancient technologies. Um, you look at the stones that comprise the pyramids in Egypt, and some of them are up to 100 tons. Um, and there are larger stones that are in Lebanon and some of them in, in quarries that haven't that seem to be um, they were they were cut but never removed uh, up to a thousand tons and more. Uh, we don't know how to lift anything with our technology. We don't know how to lift anything that big Our our biggest cranes could not lift even the stones in the pyramids left, let alone these thousand ton stones uh, that are left in quarries, um, these obelisks that are simply huge. So did they have anti-gravity technology in some ancient civilization in the past? I've thought a lot about, well, first of all, they must have had some kind of technology to build the things that they've left to us. Um, and it probably wasn't the kind of technology that we have based on burning fossil fuels and using electricity. Why? Because the fossil fuels were seem, seemed to be untouched when the first people started to dig them up in the 19th century. They were just below the surface. There was just lots and lots of oil to be tapped um, easily in the ground and We've used that. It's if some future civilization after we're long gone tries to tap fossil fuel energy, they'll find that all the easy reserves are gone. Um, so for whatever reason, they weren't using fossil fuels, whoever built the pyramids. And uh, I guess the conventional story, I've got to mention the conventional story is it was done with human muscle power. That's I, I think that's ridiculous. You, you think of how many people it would take surrounding a thousand ton stone to lift it out of a quarry. Um, it's yeah, the, the people advocating the that should, should try it sometime, maybe. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so they had some kind of technology, and it was probably very different from our own. Anti-gravity uh, seems seems plausible in that context, and also some kind of mind over matter technology. Um, you hear stories of levitation and you hear stories of uh, Uri Geller bending spoons and maybe the mental technologies were highly developed in these ancient civilizations and capable of moving large objects. Right. And of course, people, a lot of listeners are going to be skeptical of that, not having. I'm skeptical, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, if it weren't for the evidence that's right in our face. Um, well, there, as you mentioned, there's clear evidence of parapsychology, which is completely ignored by mainstream science, uh, both evidence of mind reading and evidence that ordinary people can um, can move objects at the quantum level, change quantum probabilities just by thinking about it. And then there are the stories of that came out of Stargate, uh, where there are people who are fantastically talented in this area and capable of making macroscopic things happen. 
by their intent alone. So this is a door that's open, and and how much of this is real, uh, I don't pretend to know. But uh, you know, I, I I want to find out more about it, and maybe this is part of the explanation for how these huge stones got moved in the ancient past, and maybe it's part of the explanation for UFOs and ETs and what they have that uh, enables them to move across galaxies and uh, visit us. Right. Well, I think a, a lot of the evidence around the supposed contactees, uh, that is people who are alleged to have had some kind of contact with ETs, is that they communicate telepathically. Now, you know, what we're going to do with that evidence, whether we're going to believe it is another question, but there, there's, it's, it's a huge field <laughs> to try to, try to parse. But in any case, the, there does seem to be that, that link between the two topics, both of which are ruthlessly suppressed in the mainstream, or at least have been until recently. With, the UFO seems to be less suppressed now. There's a movement to, as we noted, the mainstream is starting to take it seriously, but I haven't seen that happening yet with the psi technology issue. It's that's moving into the mainstream too. I think it was 2017 or so that uh, an article came out in a mainstream psychology journal for the first time, summarizing uh, decades and decades of data on parapsychological research, and that article. Um, Etzel Gardenia, C-A-R-D-E-N-A, Etzel Gardenia. Um, you can look him up. And there's a researcher at Cornell who was doing mainstream psychology all his life, and when he finally retired, he dumped on us a lot of parapsychological research, which he had been doing all along, believed in all along, but until he's retired, he just didn't feel like he he dared to publish it. And his name will come back to me in a moment. Interesting. Okay, so... um Let's see. Well, I, I was going. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you're next, for, yeah, go, go ahead. Okay. No, no. But, but for me, the next topic is $21 trillion missing from the Pentagon budget. Right. And uh, I guess if you, you want to give some in, uh, introduction to that, what, what you know yeah, about the first it. Time I ever, so, first time I ever heard anything like this was early on uh, post 9-11 when it came to light that the night before 9-11, that was on, on that Monday night, September, or Monday, I guess Monday afternoon, September 10th, 2001, Donald Rumsfeld uh, gave a talk on C-SPAN in which he referenced the fact that $2.3 trillion had gone missing from the Pentagon budget. And then that was, I think, maybe five or six times the then annual defense budget. So they lost you know, multiple years worth of the defense budget. It just they couldn't track it apparently, uh, and, and it was interesting that Rumsfeld announced that um, on the eve of 9/11. That on 9/11, um, an attack on the Pentagon accounting offices occurred. Um, so that got me scratching. Yeah, my head. the missile happened to hit in exactly the place where that computer was that had all the information about the two point three trillion dollars that was missing. I guess we can't investigate it after all. Shucks. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I have a hard time figuring out, you know, how how to parse something. I I can't wrap my mind around the the chutzpah that it would take to give that speech on September 10th and then blow up the accounting office on September 11th. You know what? It's it's all it's it's almost like they're sort of you know rubbing our noses in the fact that we can't do anything about it. Uh, so, I I want to. Um emphasize this point of multi-years worth of pen, Pentagon budget being going missing. It's not multi-years of worth. I mean, we're, we think of this as graft. You know, it's these $100 toilet seats and these uh, bloated Defense Department, Department budgets that we can't account for. No, it's much, much, much bigger than that. At that point, $2.3 trillion was more than the entire amount that had ever been allocated by the U.S. Congress for the defense budget and the Department of War that came before the Department of Defense since 1776 up till 2001. It had not amounted to $2.1 trillion, $2.3 trillion. And now we have Catherine Austin Fitz and um, what's the name of the the guy at Michigan State who documented it's it's up to twenty one trillion, and that was in twenty eighteen. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's it's now double that. It's in the forty trillions somewhere that's missing. Th- these are enormous amounts of money. Uh, so how, how can it be not, missing more money than they've ever been allocated? That's the point. That's exactly the point. And I, you know, in the fields where I, I think of supporting scientists, a million dollars a year is a budget for a scientist and uh, his whole lab and his equipment and taxes and overhead and everything else is a million dollars per scientist per year. Um, so how much is $21 trillion? Over ten years, over over a ten-year period, it's enough to support hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people. You have to figure their salaries and overhead and and equipment costs are being paid by this twenty-one trillion dollars. Where are these hundreds of thousands of people? What are they doing? And that, to me, lends credence to the idea that there are underground cities or. Uh, you know, if you believe the speculative stuff about what the technology is available is capable of doing, maybe there are actually cities on the moon. Um, well, if they had that kind of technology, why would they need these dollars, right? Do they have to crawl out of their underground cities to go to the Seven Eleven and you know buy a snack, or what, what? What are they going to use the dollars for if here on you know our open Earth civilization is so far behind theirs? That's that kind of makes no sense. That would be kind of like if if you know people on Wall Street had some elaborate system to try to create tons and tons of of shells that they could use over in you know some civilization on the on the co- on some island off the coast of Africa where people are still using shell money. Like, why would they need that? Uh, it's that that to me is much less mysterious. To build all these things, you need people. You need not only money to pay them, you need money to silence them. Uh, you need to buy materials from the 
the mainstream culture. So you're moving stuff um, uh, up and down into the underground cities, up into the <laughs> up to the moon <laughs> for the far side of the moon cities. Well, maybe. Have you looked at yeah. the debunkings though? There are these attempted debunkings that say, well, you know, they didn't really lose that much money. It's just that these, this is the total number of transactions they couldn't account for. So there's, there, you know, there's money flying all over the place. And so the same dollar could be counted many, many, many times. And so when you end up with that 2.3 trillion figure, it doesn't represent that much money has been lost. Now I'm, I don't have the account. My mom is the CPA and she's. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that. I, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, um... Okay. I'm talking from this other reference frame where $21 trillion is a huge, huge amount of money. It's um, At the time, it was more than the uh, – in 2018, I believe it was more than the whole GDP of the United States. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, it's it's a pretty strange topic. And, you know, whether or not it's true that that much money has been lost, that's you know just one piece of – Evidence that seems to suggest there could have been um, the, this kind of breakaway civilization scenario going somewhere. There's lots of other evidence too, of course. <laughs> what are you thinking of? Well, you're, you mentioned the, you know, the underground city in Turkey, and uh, boy, what else? Um, the uh, <laughs> uh, some of the ancient, you know, the archaeology, uh, um, you know, amazing anomalous objects uncovered uh, throughout history, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so that's a that's evidence for this technology is possible. But do we have any direct evidence that uh, that there are such underground cities or cities on the moon or whatever? And uh, I've found many stories uh, that people tell. Yeah, on the web, I find videos by people who say, "Yeah, I was invited to go to the moon." Um, people who say I was blindfolded and taken to one of these underground cities. There's one video that um, shows deep underground military bases, dumbs, claims that there are thousands of these around the world and that they're connected by maglev trains underground. And that's the kind of scale that you would expect if there were spending $21 trillion on uh, technologies that are way beyond us. Um, but it's, does this, does this one video have any credibility? I, I don't know. There are three underground military bases that are acknowledged and you can read about them in Wikipedia. I think one is Cheyenne and Colorado. One is Raven Rock in Pennsylvania. And then there's Weather Mountain. And these are huge. They're at least, uh, they're acknowledged to be a square mile each and heavily fortified. And presumably they're straight military um, preparing for nuclear wars and uh, making sure that our Military and our leaders can <laughs> can survive. Yeah. So George C. Even, Scott can have even a good if the time rest of us die. Yeah, and uh, Doctor um, Strangelove, uh, George C. Scott is looking forward to that. Uh, keeping having all those women yes. down there. <laughs> um, so that's what's acknowledged, and is that 
are there many, many more such things and using exact exotic technologies? That, that's where I'm speculating. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting uh, question to say the least. Um, and uh, let's see, in, in, in your final, we're getting towards the end of the show, so I think maybe we should jump to that uh, really interesting, like one paragraph integrated narrative that you end with, you know, the uh, grand unified theory of how all this stuff could come together. And you kind of follow Zachariah Sitchin's school of thought. Uh, and so I'll let you uh, go ahead and, and introduce it. It's, just, uh, it's not going to unfold that way, though perhaps it will begin with martial law and unprecedented le levels of government surveillance and shutdowns. The truth about the overlords and their plans will leak out slowly. Well, the truth has already leaked out a long time ago, but it will leak out in ways that are so squarely in our face that people have to start believing it. It's my prognosis for 2024. And it will make our heads spin and it'll be so bewildering and disorienting that no one can assimilate this new reality. It'll be a time of great volatility. People who believe this strange truth will be convinced to believe other stranger things. Some of them aren't true. And the overlords will escalate their censorship and propaganda, but it will be too late to close the barn's door. And I don't know if that's what you're talking about. Yeah, well, I, actually, no, that's a good one. That's your pr prediction for 2024. And, and I, then I say in this speculative scenario, the technologies for unlimited energy, anti-gravity and travel to the stars will be released concurrently with what Giorgiani calls the specular technologies, a blend of hardware and techniques of the mind. And we'll be able to read each other's thoughts. So all those secrets which are necessary for the evil become untenable and will become aware that to a great extent the thoughts that are in our heads are not ours but they're shared by members of our families and communities and especially the people we care about the most and this feeling of separate existence which is really the bedrock of modern western culture will it's the bedrock of reductionist science of capitalist systems and the motives that uh, homo economis is supposed to be motivated by utilitarian philosophy, it's all going to melt away. And our sense of separate existence and isolation and aloneness will dissolve and we'll live once again the way our indigenous communities live and presumably the way our antediluvian ancestors lived in loving thy neighbor and embracing the common good, not because it's a commandment, not because the law says you have to, but because it feels so good, like losing yourself in sexual union. It's not too early to start building this kind of community here and now. Well, that sounds great to me. It sounds better, much better than the ending of uh, Arthur C. Clarke's childhood end. childhood end. It sounds a little bit like that, but the in in his book of course the uh you know the evil overlords who have no psychic abilities whatsoever who are totally materialistic they're geniuses but they're ultra materialistic uh they end up kind of losing control as humanity uh, wakes up to its uh its psychic uh powers and then sort of unites and i like your your story better really yeah though uh, let's not focus on the worst things that can happen there are plenty of those and there are plenty of people talking about it and I, I i always like to quote charles eisenstein talking about the world is in such horrible shape that it's really going to take a miracle for us to get to the next 
stage and realize this more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, his, his term. And then he says, well, what is a miracle? A miracle isn't some invent, intervention by a divine being that's way beyond us. A miracle is just something that we don't understand yet because we've got the wrong scientific ideas and it becomes possible once we realize that the world is different from the way that we conceived it. That's what a miracle is. And let's expect miracles. Well, that sounds like a plan to me. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on miracles or stories about miracles. And uh, we could probably use a few more of those kinds of miracles that are associated with, with saints. And maybe if people um, modify their approach the way you suggested and take that love by love thy neighbor view, uh, enough people do that, and a few of them do it really, really well, then maybe the kinds of miracles that are associated with saintliness will become more common and maybe we'll get the big ones that we need. And that's probably a good place to end it. So thank you so much, Judge Middledorf. It's great uh, touching bases with you. I, again, you're you're by far and away my favorite science writer. Uh, please keep posting. Well, thank you, thank you. These conversations are always enlightening and fun for me. Keep Likewise. up uh, the, the work you're doing, Kevin. Okay, thanks. Take care. It's Josh Middleurf back in the next hour with uh, Ron Unz talking about his uh, in-century new article about atrocity propaganda then and now. Stick around. Mm-hmm.